This is a Handshake Agency podcast. Welcome back to episode three of Rewind's five-part trapes back 35 years to the release of the Triffid's seminal second album, Born Sandy Devotional. We're at the halfway mark, and if you haven't listened to the first couple of episodes, it's probably best to check them out first if you want to really follow this fascinating story properly at any rate. It surprises me no one's noticed the importance of faith to these songs. The idea of love as a religious substitute. Fidelity, for me, is the modern or secular equivalent of religious conviction. It's an act for which there's no logical justification. It requires a leap of faith. Dave McComb, NME, June 1986. Okay, so we left the Triffids last episode, bunkered down in Mark Angelo's studios in London busy trying to capture the ideas of their fearless leader, Dave McComb, on tape. They didn't have a lot of tape, they were paying for it themselves and couldn't afford more than for the 10 songs which would make up the album, so they had to be really careful with decisions and not be flippant or wasteful. Although with Dave McComb at the helm, working alongside rising star producer Gil Norton, they didn't have to worry too much in this regard. He's meticulously prepared with everything mapped out, not just for each part of each song, but for the album as an entity as well. It's still a collaborative affair in that each person in the band brings something of their own to the table, hence the credits for Born Sandy devotional reading, all songs by David McComb, arranged by the Triffids, and they really are an amazing band in their own right, yet they're happy to acquiesce to Dave's vision because that's just what they did. Here's Dave's brother and bandmate Rob talking about the planning of Born Sandy. Look, I learned most of that stuff I would leave to Dave. I mean, it's only in retrospect that I, you know, I've gone back into his journals and notebooks. Um, from my point of view, he planned everything out. You know, Tree was playing all of the singles, all early sing- those early cassettes, uh, planned, but um, he wasn't sort of intransigent if, if things needed to change. I think Born Sandy was... Uh, yeah, through through the limitations, gave it a strength in a sense. There was no um, no wriggle room for oh, should we do this other one instead? No, it's, no, these are the songs we're going to do the best version. You know, if one of them hadn't worked out, it probably just would have been left off the album. But um, didn't wasn't that way? Yeah, you know, they're all they they all have um, you know something to offer. There's not a well, that's probably the same with most of Dave's songs. I <laughs> didn't write too many duds. I mean, he says this record in his notes, this is about one thing, unrequited love. That's what the whole record's about. And and that leads to some of the uh, the song orders and and, uh, and the whole structure of the record having a unified theme. Um See, at the time, that, that didn't really concern me. Uh, but, you know, uh, me and Dave were very different. Um, and I would, 
I would largely leave, you know, his creativity to himself. I'd just bring what I could, you know, you do do your bit, if you like. Um, I couldn't sing very well, but, you know, I could help with arrangements and, and play bits here and there. And that was, yeah, from my point of view, I, it was like very much a team thing. You know, you do, you know, if you're playing full forward, you don't try and go get the ball down the back. You just do your job and... Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was so again the older brother, so I was very wary of not not, not basically giving him the shits and you know, getting too. <laughs> you know, you, you can be too much in each other's pockets. So I, I, I really, and then Dave too. I think we gave ourselves distance. Whereas Dave would have been working more closely with somebody like Marty, um, or Graham, or Alzie on this uh, sort of. Uh, uh, I say the, the artistic side of it, but then the lyrics were all, always his domain, you know, and, and the greatest strength of of all the Triffids, all his work is his lyrics. He's an amazing lyricist. I mean, <clears throat> the songs just open up the more you you read, you'll hear them and, yeah. and delve yeah. into them. Yeah, he had that, that incredible ability to be speaking so personally. And then it's immediately a universal concept can be, you know, or, or it can be applied universally. Um, all these songs seem really personal, but, and, and even some of the phrases, you know, um, if you don't get caught, then steal it all. It just seems so crass, but, but in the context of the song, it's so powerful. Um, yeah, his, his, uh, his words were, were his, his greatest strength, yeah. He, I, I, I still, uh, when I go back to old songs, still find new ways to think about the words. And uh, but I'm, I'm probably uh, a bit neglectful in terms of the lyrical content of the songs. I say I would just be worrying about how does the string part fit with the bass or whatever. And I would quite often only hear the words properly when we doing the mixing or something. And I finally started to, what's this song about anyway? <laughs> um, but that that's me. Whereas Dave would have had from the initial, you know, writing of the song and ideas, how it should, how it should come out. Um, that, that was his thing. Even how they acquired the cover photo for Born Sandy Devotional, an aerial shot of the coastline at Mandura, 70 odd K south of Perth, sums up this band's dynamic. Dave knew he wanted an aerial shot of Western Australia. He was still tethered to his notion of home, no matter how far he was dragged away by his art, but he was completely prepared to trust his bandmates in actually finding the right shot, and they were totally clued into Dave's vision to have an instinctual feel for what he was after. Here's Rob again. The funny thing I remember was the cover that... Um Dave knew he had this idea of we want some sort of error shot and we went into West Australia House at the Strand in London, or Alzi and Jill went in, I think, and we're just looking through their resources they had in there. I think it was a, the shot of Mandurah that they got hold of and I'm not sure how we had the copywriter on it anyway, but uh, they came back and said, oh, we've got this image, we think it's right, and Dave said, that's fantastic, and... It was just that um, serendipity, if you like, to, to uh, 
and that um, yeah, the, the contribution of the whole band, you know, it wasn't just Dave doing these things. It, it was a real um, team approach. Even though he was often the driving force, it was, you know, really a, a shared experience. So even something like the cover, you know, most of us had a, in, be involved in how it came together. And then Marty would did, did some artwork with another guy to, to put it together with a typeface and everything. Um, yeah, so Marty is a great visual artist, by the way. He, he's, uh, he's had an exhibition of, of photography and stuff a few years ago. That was with a lot of other Perth artists, but, and he outsold them all, but um, might be because of his reputation as a musician as well. <laughs> it wouldn't have hurt. <laughs> but he, he always did their record covers until we got with Ireland and they had their art department. And our posters and, and handbills, Marty was crucial. You know, that, that bent over tree is one of his designs. That bent over tree is classic Triffid's iconography, found all over their canon. Dave McComb's main problem with band life, and this feeds directly into the content and lyrics of Born Sandy Devotional, is it presented something of a catch-22 situation. He needed to get out of Western Australia and Australia to follow his dreams, but even just going for a few months at a time made it virtually impossible to conduct a long-distance relationship. You've got to remember that this is in the 80s. There's no internet, no mobile phones, no emails, no social media. The world seemed a lot bigger and being overseas seemed a lot further away. On his trip back to WA at Christmas 83, prior to the Triffids' first UK trip in 84, David became besotted with a young girl who he'd met after seeing a dance at a Trifford show named Margaret, who seemed to harbour reciprocal feelings, except for the bit about Dave being away all the time with the band, and her father being adamantly against his daughter dating a rock and roll star. Dealing with this kind of thing is tough any time, but even harder when you're on the other side of the world in a situation with little stability. Trifford's pedal steel guitarist, Graham Lee, remembers his friend throwing himself into creativity to cope to the point that his art became all-consuming. That's all he thought about. Um, you know, while he, he could operate in the real world uh, as, a, as a person, as a friend, and, and as a really, you know, nice guy, um, he was so driven that um, he, he found relationships quite difficult. Um, and it well, virtually impossible, which um, you know brings brings us to this to the the songs on Born Sandy, which are all about um, about relationship problems. And you know, there's a note that he wrote somewhere where this next album will be. Um, songs that that have a consistent theme not just a bunch of songs um, and then that theme will be unrequited love that's what the born sandy is about and it's and it's not some kind of imagined unrequited love it's <laughs> the actual his actual situation at the time and it was a very different world i, I often wonder if um if zoom existed when when Dave was was off touring, would he have found it 
uh, found his life a lot easier. He must have, you know, he, he would have definitely found it at least a little easier. Because um, this, this is the time when international phone calls cost a fortune. Um, you know, you'd, you'd send letters. Dave was an inveterate letter writer, so he'd be always sitting in the corner scrawling a letter to, to whoever. Um, he sent postcards. Um, he, he really tried to keep in touch with people and, and not to sort of feel him, that he was isolated. But um, it, was, it was tough back in those days. Um, yeah, just imagine. Uh, look, the world that we live in now, it seems fantastical. It's just, um, you know, I can remember myself, like, um, having, saving my pennies so I could call somebody in Sweden. (laughs) I just remember one time when Rob McComb and I, after we got signed to Ireland Records, um, Rob McComb and I, didn't have anywhere to live. So we ended up living in an empty office at the, at, out at the, at the back of Island Records. And they had neglected to, um, to, to unplug one of the phones. <laughs> <laughs> we never got a bill, but, um, <laughs> but perhaps we should have. Graham agrees that despite Dave's meticulous preparation for Born Sandy Devotional, the songs still have the imprint of the Triffids all over them, a proper band album all the way. More than anybody that I've ever worked with, he did have a very clear idea of, of what he wanted. But, um, but going back to Stolen Property, um, it's, that's a very good example of a song that Dave worked on tirelessly, um, I think it in the end it's three songs um, that because he started it and then there was another song that he was trying to turn into a song which never ter- actually turned into a song but a lot of it ended up in stolen property and I've I've got recordings of uh, of the the rehearsals for stolen property and we rehearsed that over period of you know three or four months uh, and that's it's very much a song that Dave wrote the song and Dave was responsible for sort of most of the the uh, ly- lyrical ideas and melodic ideas but the band put it together through trial and error really Thank you. 
like they had no place to go. Maybe that's someone who's you. Maybe someone you don't aim to know. Maybe lost possessions. Maybe stolen property. You just lie around. songs on Born Sandy are sort of like that. Um, like, I don't think, Dave, you know, when we come together these days and play the very occasional show with guest vocalists, as soon as we start playing, it sounds like the Triffids. It's like, you know. That was the sound. The sound of the Triffids was the sound of us. And we can't help sounding like the Triffids. So, yeah, I think as I was talking before about his, his um, instincts for, for choosing people to, to work with, and I think he, he was spot on in most of his, his decisions. Despite best intentions, Graham also recalls finding a pretty nasty hangover when it came time for him to lay down his parts on Born Sandy Devotional. That's true. Um, yeah, well, most of my parts were, I remember catching the, I, I, I think, uh, I may be inventing my own history here, but <laughs> I believe that, that I was up the night before drinking tequila with Chris Abrahams. Um, who played piano on the record and I has remained a very good friend of mine to this day, but um, despite the tequila. Um, but, uh, and I remember Steve Miller, who ended up being our tour manager, falling in a hole outside our house that night. But um, I can remember being on the tube heading toward the... Uh, Farringdon Station to 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 record most of my parts and almost passing out <laughs> and and getting to Farringdon and 
and uh, walking out of the station and leaning against a brick wall and and just going, oh my god, what have I done? And then I'd I'd play to the best of my ability and then lie down on a piano stool and drink water. <laughs> but I, you know, it it may have. Uh, um, encouraged me to be economical <sighs> because that's all I could do. <laughs> <laughs> was Dave's um, notes to you to avoid country cliche? Oh, he was, but no, that was, that was, didn't have to, didn't have to, was he didn't have to write a note about <laughs> that. No, no, if I ever did anything vaguely country, he'd just look at me and say, What was that? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'd been oh. seeing a lot of Graham Parsons at the time. Um... Yes, so had Dave. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not it's not specifically at that time, but um, but I always I've always listened to Graham Parsons. I I bought those Graham Parsons records when they came out. Um, I just loved him and the Flying Brito Brothers before that. Um, and Dave, Dave liked that kind of music as well. Um, you know, I th- and he actually asked me when I joined the band to to give him some compilation cassettes, as we used to do in those days. Um, and I gave him quite a few compilation cassettes, and I noticed certain bits of certain cassettes um, being borrowed by him. Was, um, I gave him, I remember I, uh, Randy Newman's 12 Songs album that has um, uh, my old Kentucky home on it. Um, there's a line on that, shooting at the birds on the telephone lines, and that, that cropped up in um, Chicken Killer. Shooting at the birds on the telephone line. And I think another... A John Prine song, Far From Me, has a lyric about um, ain't it funny how an old broken bottle looks just like a diamond ring. You'll find those words paraphrased on Born Sandy as well. But, he, but now Dave um, borrowed from uh, other writers. He borrowed from, he also borrowed from Macbeth on on um, estuary bed, but he was quite open about about his borrowing, and he he quite rightly believed that um, every writer borrows from whoever they can. He was very literary, wasn't he? Obviously, he loved bands as well, but he was always reading. Yeah, he was always reading. He would be off to the bookshop. As soon as we, he had a favourite bookshop in most places that we visited, and he'd, he'd head off to the bookshop. Um, he was always carrying around a, a big bag with um, notebooks and books. Awesome. And one, I remember once he lost it, and it was like a tragedy. I think, <laughs> I think we may have discovered it somewhere, but it was... There were six months of songs gone. So we've got Dave nursing a broken heart and fighting the tyranny of distance and it's seeping into every aspect of his existence, including the album. 
which is no real surprise, as this girl had already been his muse for most of the Raining Pleasure EP, including the gorgeous title track, and even the powerful Field of Glass from their 1985 John Peel session. It's all through Bourne Sandy songs too, like Lonely Stretch, which we heard about in episode 2, Wide Open Road, which we'll look at in depth during episode 4, and even a song like Life of Crime is about sneaking around with Margaret because her parents didn't approve. Personal Things, which deals with the contradiction in loving being a musician but resenting some of the trappings of the vocation, whether living out of a suitcase or missing your loved ones. All of my stuff is spread out on the floor and I may better drink or I'm packing and unpacking personal things that fail to remind me of you. Of you. You can album title itself. Born Sandy Devotional would also end up as a song on the Triffords' next album in The Pines, but first it lent its name to their second album. Dave wrote the song while in Sydney pining for Margaret, thinking about the first time they had proper time alone together at a holiday shack at Cowarum Up, down near Margaret River. The sentiment of the song must have suited the album's title to Dave, even if, as Graham explains, the song itself never made the cut. I don't think it ever was in the mix. And I think it just became the inspiration for uh, the title for, of the album. Um, he just really liked that. I mean, there was a whole page of album titles um, before he decided on that one. And he was asking us to to um to scroll some things down on that page as well, but um, I don't think he would have ever taken any of our suggestions entirely <laughs> seriously. But but um, but he had some pretty crazy ones down there as well. Um, there was definitely ten thousand dollar kangaroo was one of them <laughs> because they hit a kangaroo travelling across the Nullarbor, and what that had to do with the, the theme of the of the um, of the album, I don't know, but um, it could have been called it could have been called Ten Thousand Dollar Kangaroos. Now the Triffids had a had a little van called Happy Wheels, and uh, yeah, Happy Wheels um, was repaired, I think, and continued on the journey, but cost a lot of money. 
One person who totally got Dave's yearning was agent manager Sally Collins. Not only had she and Dave grown really tight as friends, but she was away from her partner at the time as well, so it became something of a shoulder to lean on for the forlorn singer. Yeah, I I felt very close with Dave and we were, um, the way we worked was, you know, I'm, I was a manager, became the manager of the band, but I was, uh, in a way, I saw it as uh, my responsibility was to him and um, uh, to all of them as a group. And we were like a family unit. But, you know, I would go to him uh, once a year, the beginning of the year, everybody come back to Australia for Christmas. I'd go to Perth. I'd sit down with Dave and say, well, what's the big dream? You know, what's the dream for this year? What are we really going to achieve? What what do you want to do? And we would map it out. He would write me, if I did go over there, he would write me long letters of what his vision would be for the next thing. And, you know, as a manager, as a representative, you can't get better than that because you know where you're going. You know, you're not having to, you know, you're not alone in trying to scratch and cobble together plans. And I used to say to him, okay, well, if I can't do this for you in this year, you know, if we can't move this further and we can't do that and we can't do that, then, you know, maybe you have to be thinking somebody else other than me. You know, maybe I'm not the person for it. But that was my incentive, you know. So he would write, we would plan these things and then, you know, I'd go off and try and... um, achieve them but yes his writing is um yeah you know I just was a you know like everybody else just a massive fan you know I mean the guy was a poet you know and just and I love lyrics and melody you know and and, uh that's what he gave you and and we were close to when we were traveling because Rob traveled with his partner when he had Marty traveled with Liz, his wife, Jill and Alzi were together. Graham had a girl in every place he had to. He was just a chick magnet. And Dame and I were separated from our partners for most of the year. And the so the, you know, we had something in common. I really related to the lyrics that he was, he was writing about. And I understood, you know, the depth of his sort of feelings in that regard but but yeah you know that writing just got better and better and as much as we're talking about you know here um born sandy i loved his writing more and more with each you know i love the writing on the black swan Mm. i love it so yeah i you know i could just see how it was developing and and also through that i got to see how he also you know, after Born Sandy and after Callenshire, you know, I could see the, how he wanted to break away as well because he kept going, you know, the, um, yeah. It, it's it's hard, it's staggering to think back with these amazing songs that Dave was only 23 at the time of Born Sandy. Was he sort of older than his year, wiser than his years, if that makes sense? Yeah, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the um, I, I think so. He's a, he's a very deep thinker, and he is always, you know, he's uh, he's always you know, like conversations were always intellectual, 
there were books, you know, we, we all talked about books and music. We listened to music constantly where we spent a lot of time in vans and, and minibuses where that would happen and, um, or on ferries and things like this. And, and the, uh, he was just a sponge, you know, and he would make those every year, he'd make those fantastic compilation tapes of the things that he'd been listening to. And so, and, you know, I learned a lot about music through him and I would like to think that he might've learned a lot about music um, through, from, from me because, um, well, for, and, and all of us from each other, you know, and certainly from Graham as well, because Graham and I were older than the, uh, the, the rest of them and, and our tastes were uh, probably broader. Except his tastes are incredibly broad. Uh, Calendar and the Black Swan that Sally mentioned just before, that's the Triffids' fourth and fifth albums from 87 and 89, respectively. Now, back in episode two, Sally mentioned that she wasn't around the Born Sandy devotional sessions all the time because she was so busy looking after the logistical side of proceedings. Yet her name pops up in the album credits as having contributed backing vocals. She explains. Yeah, well, they saved a lot of money there. <laughs> I, uh, we, I, I sang on Chicken Killer twice um, uh, the, in the John Peel session. Um, uh, we did it in a John Peel session. And, you know, I was, I was milling around there. And, um, uh, you know, Dave said, you know, can you come in and sing this with Jill? And I want it to sound like, you know, Pitchy children, pitchy girls, or you know whatever. And, you know, to me, it sounded. You know, I used to call it chicken shriller because <laughs> <laughs> we sound quite shrill. <laughs> but he was he was happy enough with it that it was repeated and was on the album. Yeah. A Nilta aimed a Mr. Across the fields where I love begin. The ears of the corn began to melt and swim. Twenty twenty vision, ninety five percent dim. Members roping in another random, unsuspecting Londoner, Faye Brown, to also add vocal flourish to proceedings. I remember the there's a, a backing vocalist on Life of Crime called Faye something or other. I can't remember her last name. I met her at a party, and she said she was a singer. And I'm, okay, do you want to sing on our record? <laughs> <laughs> and she came along with her whole family. Um, that Faye was a was a black girl, and she came along with her her family because I think they were a bit concerned about this bunch of Australians inviting their daughter to come and sing on their record. I don't think I think they were a little dubious. They were lovely. Yeah, she did a great job, and and uh, no harm befell her. I Remember the quote from Dave that opened episode two? 
how he was going to write this thematically linked album and how he was going to make it very literary to avoid it becoming soppy, he was completely true to his word. Many of these songs are delivered as vignettes rather than straight narratives, where the listener is dropped in the middle of a situation with little explanation, left to decipher context as the story unfolds. Just to put you off the scent, the main thing that Dave valued in any art being that element of mystique or mystery. Another device he liked to use to shroud his song's autobiographical nature was to get someone else to sing them, to place himself at a remove from the song's sentiment. This was usually the band's keyboardist, Jill Burt, as we heard on Raining Pleasure at the end of episode one, and to Sally this was just a reflection of how much of himself Dave naturally invested into his songs. He spent a lot of time thinking about it, you know, and so, you know, his art, it was his major preoccupation. And so as much, and, and he knew who he was dealing with, with the band. So, you know, the, um, so he would think, you know, with Jill, for example, he, he knew Jill's voice would be, you know, um, the voice that he wanted to hear, you know. So with Jill, I guess you know, um, you know, he's he's channeling their, you know, their Nico sort of the the innocence and uh, uh, and um, and childlike qualities of of Jill's voice and and her delivery, which is excellent. <laughs> never he didn't mind stepping away from the center to to give you know um jill a voice and and she then became you know she's a good writer as well and she her writing developed um at the at this along the same time but um yeah he he uh had a lot of things i remember the um with a couple of songs you know, he would just be able to say to Graham, for example, I want this, and that's, you know, and he would have a, you know, he always had his notebooks and lists of things where he would have written down and uh, references of songs that or sounds, you know, in production or whatever that he um, was envisaging um, for, for a particular song. That song you just heard a part of, Tarrell Up Bridge, was written in Europe during a particularly severe episode when Dave's thoughts turned suicidal. So of course he's not going to want to sing that himself every night, dragging himself back into that mindset. Adam Peters saw how severely Dave was being impacted by heartbreak, which always seems worse when you're young, but found that this wasn't enough to keep his eyes off the prize, which was making Born Sandy devotional as great and epic in real life as he saw and heard it in his head. Young love's like that, isn't it? Especially when you don't really know what you're doing, but you're... The, the thing that love is, is that thing that sort of takes you over. 
it takes over your psyche and your body and you know your your whole being and i think he really felt those things and he really encapsulated them as well you know the it, it does it's like um you know like later on there was that song love the fever and i think he did see see things a bit like that that it was you know almost like a, something that took you over like almost like a disease um i know he had some of those analogies um but he was just the fucking best he was the best he really was he was brilliant he kind of grew during that album he he grew in 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 everything i think he just sort of felt like he was he was on one you know he he was there he was in london we were doing this stuff we were doing something new for him and for me and for all of us and it was working we knew it was working it but we weren't sort of seeing it in those terms it was just like fuck that's great isn't it <laughs> yeah it's brilliant um let's do another one okay let's try this let's put this on this 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 okay let's put you know and then yeah you know it, it just um there was a, an emotion it was an emotional thing so the music was becoming really really emotional and i just think it it, it sort of th that album really captured musically what he, the strength of his songwriting was um this sort of collision this this collision of where they'd been on that sort of um you, you know what what where they were at as a band and then suddenly these they were just opening up everything was sort of opening um and so he you know things started things started to become sort of 3d on that album i believe um and i think that was a it was a really beautiful moment in time of this sort of the youth that we had combined with the the talent that they had and then the the stuff i was bringing to it it just all just sort of came together and it came together really fast in a natural way and then we'd all go out and just then we'd go be just straight down the pub and you know it was it was brilliant and then um during the record you know the recording went on for a bit um you know and i, I noticed Gabe, dave's guitar playing got way more confident because you know i i i just saw it happen you know he he started to just sort of dig in and you know he'd be his lead playing just sort of became very um like of him you know but he he kind of got it suddenly he wasn't just sort of playing like oh i'm going to do the velvet underground song i'm going to do this i'm going to do that it's like he realized there was a stage that the this performance thing that we were doing in in a recording studio he was like on a everyone was on a stage 
I don't mean that literally there was a stage in the recording, but it's like, it, it felt like, okay, what are you, I've just done this. Okay, well, what are you going to do? Well, I'll do this. You know, um, he's, he, he, it was like that. And then of course, they, you know, like Marty's bass playing was fucking phenomenal. And he, you know, he was such an amazing anchor to have. And Alzi was playing great, it, 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 you know, and everyone and, you know, it, it sort of, um, it was a very, it, it was, it was auspicious, as they would say, you know, <laughs> it really was. Um, it, it, it was very honest in its exuberance, I would say. And, you know, that, that Aussie scene that was sort of start the, starting in London at the time that they were part of was really exciting. You know, we'd go around to Bledin's house and, you know, those guys from the birthday party would be there who they'd been like the first wave, but then the Triffids turned up and the go-betweens and the Moodists and everyone would be there. And it was brilliant. It was, it was absolutely great. You know, there was a real, real energy going on in, in London at that time. And um, of course, you had all these other bands going on. That I just thought it was normal. I just thought it was completely normal. It's like, all right, I'll be in, I'm in the Bunny Man, then there's the tributes, and then we'll go off and see this lot. And there's the birthday party over there. And it's like, now I look back on it, I'm like, fuck, man, that was amazing. But, um, it was no big deal. It was like, you know, th th those guys, they were, they were all brilliant. You know, the whole band, you know, they were, they, they were great and they had their own thing, you know, and I loved it when Jill sang and Dave was like, Let, you know, he, he was really, he, he fucking got it. He really got it. it, it it's like on tender in the tender is the night. He, so he really didn't want it to be perfect or anything. Gil would be like, oh, it's a bit out of tune. And we're like, it's, it's great. Don't fuck it up. Leave it alone. You know, and, um, you know, that was, that was, you know, it was just very human. And hearing Jill singing those words was, I mean, is, is that not the perfect end to any album? I mean, it, it brings tears to me when I hear that. That it, it's so good, it's so good. The album was coming together, and it was clear that something magical was happening. Engineer Nick Mainsbridge, who'd also worked on the Triffids' debut Trailers Plane, is in the best position to give an objective viewpoint on the seismic jump between the two albums, which he puts down to an evolution of the Triffids as a band, as much as Dave's songwriting. Well, look, the night before Born Tandy Devotional started recording, they did a gig um, Camden, near Camden Lock somewhere. And I went to see them and I just couldn't believe what I was hearing compared to the early days of the Trade Union Club. You know, in the Trade Union Club, often there would be um, uh, percussion instruments put in front of the stage so people could join in. It was all very, um, uh, a, a different kind of temperature. You know, and when I saw them in London the night before, um, the change was 
that, uh, let me try and explain this. Uh, less experienced musicians, when they play loud, they tend to rush and push. But experienced musicians have this ability to play loud without uh, causing the groove to disappear. They can pl play loud and it feels firm because nothing's getting faster and it makes the whole thing sound large. And th they had that, the, the difference. Well, Dave was actually frightening. He was so um, direct and uh, his, he was projecting so much that it was actually sort of terrifying to watch. And rewinding back to um, the trade union club, it, that's a completely different style of delivery. Martin was always... Um, the guy who could um, perform that feat of a hot temperature without sort of rushing. And um, I think actually, um, if you listen to a song like Property is Condemned, you'll find that that, you know, his part is quite sort of important in that. And that that's one of those songs that, that gives a hint of what I heard much later in London when they'd played so many times and so much that they just knew, you know, well, they were really polished musicians at that point. And a lot of that growth and evolution in the Triffids aesthetic post-treeless plane, Nick attributes to the addition of Graham Lee on pedal steel to the lineup. Both his instrument and his taste uh, made an enormous difference. But one wonders if... Um, Oh, no, I don't want to say that. But, yeah, his sound just added that third dimension that, that Dave was often pursuing. When we were mixing in the early days, he would be very interested in what was at the back of the stage and what was front of the, the sound field. But uh, Graham gave us this sort of far back thing that could also be a feature, but it really... Um, added another dimension. I um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it was twice as wide with Graham. You mentioned Dave in the studio and how he had a particular vision, but he wasn't like a dictator, was he? He let the band sort of express their own individual selves throughout? Yeah. Um, there was always a critique, but it was always with a question, and the question was always a valid one. Does that feel right when it comes in? Do you, you know, is that a bit rushed at the end? <laughs> is that the right tone? And the tone was the big one, you know. And um, I look, always right, always completely in tune was what, with what was coming out of the speakers. And um, I mean, much later, I, he was wondering what he should do. And I said, well, look, why aren't you a record producer? And he said, I don't, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> just like to me it's crazy yeah. anyway uh, so look Dave had extensive notes on every track in the early days when it was just us without Gil we would be even planning what numbered tracks each instrument would be on and it would have a strategy to fit it all onto 24 and uh, you'd see his notes with the instrument to do today and a bunch of adjectives and probably a couple of references from other records. And um, we would sort of 
match that brief, I suppose. <laughs> but, you know, the interesting things always happened and uh, it wasn't always 100% of the brief. I don't think um, he knew to the nth degree what it should be, but he had a very, very good sense of what it should feel like. I don't want to take any credit, but an astonishing thing happened once during Born Sandy Devotional. For a long time, that song was recorded and he wasn't prepared to do the vocals. And I suspect it's because the lyrics weren't written. And I came in one morning and he said, Nick, just listen to this and read out the lyrics to the seabirds. Oh. And um, he said, what do you think of that? And I mean, oh, look, I didn't know what to say besides like, why the hell are you asking me? But he said, where does it put you? And I, I said, oh, uh, on a jetty. And he said, where are you? Uh, and I said, Applecross. That's the kind of, I was in Perth on a jetty. And I think that was close enough. I think he meant somewhere else, but that was close enough. And it was just astonishing, like, for him to ask me, of all people, what I thought of his lyrics, it was just, uh, you know, floored me. And he does floor people. He did floor people. Nick is at pains to point out that while Dave McComb might have been struggling with affairs of the heart during Born Sandy Devotional, he was far from mired in melancholy. He was... Um, a, a positive guy. He was an Anglophile. He was well-read. He was, uh, had a bright outlook. Um, I'm sure there were darker moments, but I don't think I was one to share them with. Um, I, I think he had an incredibly difficult task. Well, whatever his task was, right. But you know, the, I remember visiting the band in their house. Was it the Shepherd's Bush house? Who knows? Um, in those days, you know, colour TV was sort of getting really popular or there was a change in standard or something. The entire house was furnished with disused black and white TVs, like the tables, the coffee tables. They were just sort of taken off the street because everyone was throwing them out. And this was the furniture, you know. Here's a TV with a cushion on it that you can sit on, you know. And which is lovely, you know, nobody suffers because of that. But it was just sort of um, gave an indication of the circumstances, you know. Everyone's scratching for rent, people are washing dishes, doing whatever they have to do. And uh, it was, uh, must have been pretty tough to hold that together. Did, did the Triffids have a good band dynamic? You've, you've worked with a lot of bands over the years. They seem like pretty good mates. Isn't they? Yeah. Well, everyone's a gentleman, you know. Um, yeah, they treated each other well. And, um, you know, there was no sense of a gang. Because, it, like, in a way, people were quite different, you know. Um, but, no, they all got on, as far as I could tell, very well. And... Um, they treated me very well too, uh, personally, you know. Um, no, look, Dave was a gentleman. And I don't think he'd work with people who weren't. Oh, he'd prefer not to anyway. I was incredibly young for my age and uh, I was uh, 
at times scared as hell, but I guess any 21-year-old would have been as well. Um, it was incredibly exciting to be where I was. There were heaps of challenges. It was um, a difficult time for me. And uh, thanks to quite a few people in the Australian diaspora, I was I ended up okay. But um, it it wasn't a time where I was living comfortably by any means, you know. Um, so, and I think everyone else was in that position. I, I remember this dreadful Christmas where um, the Moodists had just had all of their instruments stolen. And it was, I mean, they were fantastic. I used to go and see them and like, this is probably one of the best bands I've ever seen, you know, and then one Christmas, it's like, well, everything's gone. We have to leave. That was just, but um, that was incredibly sad, but sort of everyone was um, a gig away from being in that position, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting times. Um, yeah, look, uh, London in the eighties, Fantastic, but very difficult to survive. London might have been difficult to survive in the 80s, but the Triffids were giving it a red-hot crack. Rob McComb couldn't quite get his head around what his brother Dave was going through in London, but agrees that it's pretty much encapsulated in that last song on the album, almost a duet with Jill, Tender is the Night, The Long Fidelity. He didn't like uh, travelling that much. Love, you know, he was a fantastic performer, but, yeah, he, um, his personal relationships suffered incredibly from, you know... I mean, we all had those problems. Uh, well, Jill and Alzi, they had a relationship in the band, so but they could complain, well, but we never got escape from each yeah. other. So um, it's not... Yeah. Um, but... Graham, me and Marty, we, we had relationships that were put under pressure, I guess, by always travelling. Um, but for David, it's just he seemed to have to sacrifice more, I guess. Um, and, yeah, he had, didn't... I mean, I, I, I can't really comment on too much about his relationships. I've always known that was relationships... People outside never know what's really going on. So, um, but he has um, he has described himself how how tough uh, his relationships were with the, just the physical problem of of travelling so much and and having to dedicate your life to being you know in some other place. Yeah. Even just that last line of tender is the night. You can tell he's Minds on the other side of the world, do you know what I mean? That, that whole song is, um, yeah, if you, uh, it's the closest thing to an autobiography that you would uh, see in the Triffids lyrics. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, and, and at the time, he didn't, didn't quite believe he could be describing his own life that way, but it's so accurate in, in the end. So as the Born Sandy devotional sessions were wrapping up, all and sundry knew they'd made something great. The only grey cloud, as Graham explains, is that they still hadn't found a new home for it. 
which which we were very surprised and disappointed about because um, you know we knew that we had made something really fantastic. I don't think we knew that we had made something that would last the way it has and that would actually sound timeless. Um, though that that um, we were trying to make something like that, but. Um, I don't think we were fully aware of, of that, but we definitely knew that it was it was a great record. And we were very disheartened when when nobody nobody took the bait. And we had to put it out ourselves. Okay, we'll leave episode three there. In the next two instalments, we delve deep into Born Sandy Devotional's centerpiece and soul single, Wide Open Road and introduce a couple of new voices to help me unpack everything we've heard, in the process signposting my own personal voyage with both the Triffids and this amazing album. Please join us for those, it's well worth it. We'll close this episode with the song that closes Born Sandy Devotional, the track Rob and I were just talking about, The Gorgeous Tender Is The Night. I knew him as a gentle
Three down, two to go. You can do it. Thanks heaps for listening. Hope to catch you soon. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Mutz. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.